Good morning. So here we are, another week. Another week of trying to figure out what life is supposed to look like and another week of waiting for answers to questions we've had for five months. And I guess another week of trying to figure out what the rules are, right? I had this thought the other day about what it would be, what it will be like when things go back to normal. And that's when it hit me. If I have to wonder what it's gonna be like when things go back to normal, then we're beyond ever going back to normal. Whatever life will be after all of this will just be, it'll just be just as new and unfamiliar as the last five months have been. It'll require just as much adjustment and awkward social engagement to get used to whatever life beyond a pandemic will be. I don't know if you feel this way, but it just feels like I'm in a perpetual state of waiting, like I'm in a waiting room. But waiting for what? I have no idea. Everything just feels blurry and muted. I'm waiting for something, waiting for someone to give us some good news. You know, 2020 is gonna be remembered. It's gonna be remembered for a long time. Books will be written about it. Policies and systems will be created because of it. Our kids and grandkids are gonna ask us what it was like to live through this year. And someday, it's gonna be a memory. In so many ways, I can't wait for that to be true. Last week, Mike gave us a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus. Or as he put it, the gospel of good news. The good news of Jesus. He shared with us that this good news is really just that simple. It's just good. It's good news for you, and it's good news for me, and it's good news for everyone. And Mike shared this verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not for God so loved Michigan or for God so loved you because or God so loved those in this world who... No. For God so loved the world, the whole world, and everyone in it just as he created it. That's good news. I first heard this verse as a member of Awana, when I was six years old, uh, we had to memorize it in order to receive our first crown that we would pin on our vest. I recited it over and over and over again with my parents and my Awana teachers, and I had to get every word just right and in order to receive my, uh, to receive my crown. No adjective or conjunction could be out of place. It had to be exactly right. I recited it so many times that when I finally said it correctly, I never wanted to hear it again. I never wanted to say it again. It just became this trite mantra that we would chant with apathy and PTSD. But I, as I reflect on this verse now, I, I see the reason why it has remained the most widely memorized, the most widely remembered and widely used verse in the Bible. You see, it clearly explains what the other 31,000 verses are trying to communicate. That God loves you. Yes, you. So much that he's willing to give everything just so that you'll believe him. Unlike any other philosophy or religion at the time, this gospel had nothing to do with what you had to offer God, but everything to do with what he has to offer you. At Storyline, we put it this way. There's nothing you can do to get God on your side because he's already on your side. 
And we said it so much that perhaps that runs the risk of becoming the trite mantra, the cliche that we recite with apathy. But the gospel is truly that simple. And it's truly that beautiful. And this morning, I'm tempted just to end it right there. Like, let's pray and go on with our Sunday. But I get a sense that some of you are skeptical. Maybe you want to believe it's that easy, but are struggling with the logic of it all. Or maybe the tradition you grew up with told you something different. And so in honor of full transparency, I want to say I'm with you. Nine out of ten days, I'll wake up with that kind of skepticism. Is it really that simple? So this morning, I want to explore some of that logic and dive into the nuance of the gospel and what God means when he says he loves the world so much that he willingly sent his only son. You see, the overarching theme of the Bible can be summed up in a number of different ways. One that is often overlooked is this idea that the story of the Bible is about waiting. It's about patience and perseverance despite oppression and negative circumstances that seem to conflict with the promises God has made for his people. In the Old Testament, we see verses such as this one in Exodus where it says, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Or when the Psalms writer, he's imploring his audience and he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Or in the book of Isaiah, it says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are all who wait for him. And then there's the New Testament, where in Romans it says, Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. And in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And these are just few of the many verses that point towards this theme of pursuing hope over impatience. If only we can trust in the Lord and know that in His timing, He will keep His promises, then we will have all that we need. Right now, I'm complaining about five months of new restrictions and adjusted social norms. But for the Hebrew people, they had to wander around the Middle Eastern desert for 40 years. 40 years waiting to discover a land that was promised to them. Or even worse than that, their descendants who spent hundreds of years, dozens of generations enslaved, they were waiting for a Savior to deliver them from that bondage. So when we read verses like like those, This is the context. They didn't have Netflix or DoorDash or Zoom or air conditioning or shipped. They had each other and the hope that one day their God would deliver them. This was the good news they held on to. Remember that verse from Isaiah? The one I I just shared 90 seconds ago. Of course you remember it. It says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up and show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all who wait for him. The prophet Isaiah is commissioning his readers in this verse to rest in patience that one day their God is going to save them. He's writing to a group of enslaved Hebrews who are losing hope that they will ever be delivered. 
And Isaiah is telling them, hold on. Our God is a God of justice. And if you wait for Him, you'll be blessed. But what exactly was he asking them to wait for? You see, the early followers of God, this nation of Israel believed that they were, that they were God's chosen people and that eventually God would send a king who would finally break the chains of bondage, who would deliver his people from oppression and bring peace to their world where they could live in harmony with each other and with creation. And so for hundreds of years, stories were shared and passed down about what this king would be like. And the longer his people waited, the more desperate they became. They wanted a warrior king, someone who would come and truly overthrow their captors, who would burn down the empires that ruled over them. They wanted their oppressors to suffer the same fate that their people had. The same slavery and oppression and bondage and hurt and brokenness that they had endured for hundreds of years. So imagine their surprise and their hesitation when this mangy, homeless rabbi, the son of a stonemason from Nazareth, began traveling from village to village, bringing a message of love and grace and peace and nonviolence. And on top of that, declaring himself God. They might have thought, wait a second, where's his army? Where's his fleet of chariots? Where's his sword? Where is our warrior king? Where's our deliverer who's supposed to break these chains? Needless to say, this was not what they were waiting for. Instead of chariots, he brought a message of forgiveness. And instead of an army of soldiers, he brought together a group of ragamuffins and outcasts. And instead of wielding a sword, he healed the sick and fed the hungry and gave hope to the rejected. This was the good news that they had been waiting for. But it wasn't in the package that they had been expecting. But why this deliverer? Couldn't God see that these people were being exploited and broken by the power of an unhinged and unmatched empire? Aren't they the enemy? Don't you think his response is a little, I don't know, underhanded? Sure. But only if the greatest enemy is truly external. If it's something beyond our control, then yes, God didn't meet the moment. But, but that just doesn't seem quite right, does it? That's not this story. So if the greatest enemy is an empire, if it isn't, if it isn't a, a controlling dictatorship that impedes our freedoms and, our, and steals our livelihood, then what is it? So to figure that out, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. I mean, where else would you expect me to go, right? And I promise this time I won't spend too much time here, but it just feels like that no matter how many times I read and reflect on this story, it all comes back to the beginning. You see, we, you and me, our flesh and bones, we are God's beloved creation. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that we are God's masterpiece. We are the grand finale. We are the completing piece of creation that's meant to bring it all together. And God values us so highly that in His creation, He imparted His image on us. But what does that mean? Well, it means that woven into the fabric of our being, of our human being, 
is the DNA of our Maker. And this reveals itself to us as freedom. Our freedom. Our autonomy. That is the essence of the image of, of God that we are meant to reflect and that is reflected through us. And it is the greatest gift that we've ever been given. Our freedom. God realizes that in order for us to experience that same joy and love, the same joy and love that He has for us, we must also be free to choose to experience that same joy and love. But with that freedom to choose comes the freedom to choose a life apart from that joy and that love. And what we learn as we read the Bible is that over and over and over again, God's beloved creation his people, they pay the price for choosing a life apart from God's intention. So God has a predicament on his hands. His masterpiece, his beloved creation, his joy is slowly being destroyed. And he hates it. He can't stand it. It brings up a rage within him. The thing he loves the most, you and I, is being killed. It's being destroyed by the thing he hates. Which coincidentally is you and I. So what is it to be done? God has to then become what he loves so that he can then once and for all destroy what he hates. Because the enemy, it's not taxes and it's not armies and it's not dictator. It's hope twisted into greed and it's love turned into vengeance it's grace being manipulated into debt the enemy your enemy and my enemy it's not external it's internal it's within us insert clip from blood diamond this is such a powerful scene, isn't it? It's this powerful scene from a movie called Blood Diamond. And if you didn't catch it, this boy holding the gun is the son of the man approaching him. In the opening scenes of this movie, this son is taken from his father and enslaved and brainwashed by diamond miners. But that story is not the one the father sees. Instead, he sees the son he raised who loves soccer and plantains. He sees an innocent little boy who he loves so desperately and knows that within him is still that same hope and that same innocence. His anger and fear and his rage in that moment is not towards the people who did this to him, but with the person his son is becoming. The thing he loves more than anything in this world is also the thing destroying the thing he loves more than anything in this world. So what is to be done? Well, he steps in front of the gun and he puts his life on the line, knowing the risk, knowing who his son is becoming and an attempt to destroy, to weed out the evil that's killing his son. He willingly takes that risk. That is the gospel and that is the good news of Jesus. No matter how terrible we are or how terrible we think we are, God is looking at us this way. 
He sees the hope and innocence within you. For God so loved the world. Right? So when we see Jesus in the Scriptures, this mangy, homeless rabbi traveling around the first century Palestine region, we, and we hear him say things like, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. Or God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. He blesses those who are, hunger, who are hungry and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. He blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus is calling his sons and daughters, his beloved, back to themselves. Jesus wants his followers, he wants the world to know that freedom is still there. That humility and mercy and working for peace and a thirst for justice, these are all choices that we have. Jesus is asking his followers to use their freedom, not for their own accumulation and benefit, but for the benefit of others. God's love for us is not dependent on us following these rules. It's, his love is ours regardless, but he knows that in order for us to experience the fullness of life that he so desperately wants for us, he, he needs to plead with us to recognize what we've become. And turn back towards a life where our freedom is used for the benefit of others. Not for ourselves. But then, he goes a step further, right? God's love for his people is so strong that it ignites his rage for anything that would threaten his well-being. Jesus Christ is God becoming what he loves so that he can destroy what he hates. So Jesus willingly faces execution at the hands of religious nationalists and a tyrannical empire. He doesn't resist as he's beaten and mocked and tortured and nailed to a cross. And through his death on that cross, he permanently wipes the slate clean. He pays the ultimate price and once and for all destroys that which was killing his beloved masterpiece. My friends, you are that masterpiece he died for. It's your slate that has been wiped clean. It's my debt that has been paid. It's our place that Jesus died in. He showed us what thirsting for justice and working for peace and setting aside our needs on behalf of others looks like. He showed us the power of what our freedom can do. He showed us what it means to use and benefit from the greatest gift we've ever been given. Because of his life and his death and resurrection, the waiting is over. What we're hoping for has already been done. What we're fighting against has already been defeated. And what we're longing for is already ours. But are we willing to pause and listen? Are we willing to hear his voice telling us who we are? There's another beautiful story in the Bible about a man who was paralyzed and lying next to a pool. 
He'd been sitting next to this pool for 38 years. 38 years waiting for someone to help him into it. 38 years, not five months, not 18 months, not a school year, 38 years. He believed so strongly that he could be healed only if someone would help him into that pool. And this is where Jesus finds this man. And so what does Jesus, God incarnate, do? Does he help him into the pool? No. He asks him a question. Jesus approaches this man who's, who has been waiting for 38 years and asks him this question. Do you want to be well? What? Do you want to be well? What would it mean to be well for this man? For 38 years, all he has known is one way of living, one way of existing in the world. He's had one set of friends and one setting to live within. So Jesus is truly asking this man, do you want to be well? Do you want to give up the life you've been living up to this point? Are you okay with everything? Your whole life being different from here on out? It's a fair question. And it's a question that Jesus is asking us on the cross. Do you want to be well? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for asking. And may we listen. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, friends.